in a world where Dune has finally arrived on theater screens. Welcome to the Movies on the Brain podcast. I am one of your hosts, Brian Seawood, and with me tonight is sound technician and overall genius of all things editing. <laughs> Not judging by last week's episode, Chad Mitz. Welcome to another weird, wild, and wacky week in the world of genre movie news. As I join you from an audio-only portion due to power outages and uh, internet outages around the Baton Rouge area, uh, Chad, let's talk about Dune. Um, what are your what were your thoughts on the uh, kind of the Twitter buzz and perception following Americans getting to see this movie? Uh, so it was interesting. I made it. So. I made it a conscious effort to not retweet any of the the um, reactions that I saw from Dune, because if you've listened to me talk about Dune on this podcast, I'm not the biggest sci-fi fan, and I, I'm not the bigger biggest believer of this movie. So uh, my first inclination was to retweet everything I saw that was negative. I was like, no, I'm not going to do that. So because I didn't do that, I didn't retweet anything that was positive either. But uh, I just from my Twitter timeline, it seems like most of the things I've seen have been positive. Uh, with that said, most of the people I know that are saying positive things are people that are fans of Dune. Uh, they're fans of either the book or the previous version. So seeing this version, um, they were already in the bag for. Also, a lot of uh, film Twitter, which I expected the movie is from everything I've heard as well shot well directed um and, and it it's it appeals to those kind of film people so it's been a lot of that uh and a little bit more than i, I would have thought honestly so but i don't know what that i don't know what that tells me um about what the public is going to think about this movie because my whole my whole argument is people that are in the bag for this movie uh, all the people I've just described, I, I figured they would like this movie. Is the general public going to be going in for it? And uh, I'll be watching the box office and and uh, general reception of the movie over the next couple of days to get a better feel for it. Even though the box office is not the best indicator because I forget this is one of those HBO Max joints. So lots of people can stay home and watch it. Uh, almost $6 million in previews on opening night, uh, despite the day and date release, which is uh, on par or a little bit above what Halloween Kills did last week and what Venom did three weeks ago. Um, and I can tell you from personal experience, having sat in the theater, uh, the IMAX last night, there were more people in that movie on, in the IMAX last night than I have seen in any movie that I've attended this year, period, bar none. That includes Black Widow, that includes Fast 9, that includes Shang-Chi. This was the most attended, best attended movie of the year that I have been to. Um, so the entire middle was full and two rows at the bottom were full, Chad. Yeah, that, like, is, a, that is quite a crowd. And it was in the IMAX. So you're talking $15 a hit. So, I mean, it's, it's going to be interesting. Um, 
The film's visually cold, but interesting. It's got colonial themes, themes about colonialism. And uh, I had forgotten from my time studying Dune in college, but I'd forgotten about the uh, uh, messianic um, storyline or the messianic ideal of, uh, you know, a savior coming to save a foreign people <laughs> um, and establish a new kingdom. Um, the movie does kind of just end but it ends to me in a natural way. Like you can tell from about the beginning of the second act on where they're trying to move this to, if that makes sense. Like, you know, you know, as you're going through fellowship that you're going to end the movie at the end of, at the breaking of the fellowship. That's, that's what you're building to. You're, you're starting with Frodo. Uh, you're starting with Bobo getting showing how Bilbo got the ring. You're showing Bilbo giving the ring to Gandalf, Gandalf figuring out what the ring is, Gandalf uh, uh, taking Frodo along as the ring bearer, Frodo, you know, uh, coming to, to Minas Tirith, or not Minas Tirith, uh, to uh, uh, Rivendale, to the council, uh, the fellowship of the council, the council of the fellowship, to them setting off on their quest, to Gandalf dying, to... Uh, the breaking of the fellowship and Sam and, and um, Berto going their way, uh, Legolas, uh, Gimli, and um, Aragon going theirs, and Baromir dying. But you know that the movie's going to, you, you can tell from, from pretty much the second act on that the, the movie's building to the end of the, to the breaking of the fellowship. And this movie, from the second act on, you can tell they're, they're building to Paul and the native people meeting for the first time and him being taken in by them and being shown their world in meeting Zadaya's character. And you can kind of just naturally tell that's where they're leading to and they're taking you by the hand and guiding you there. So it's not as abrupt, but it's still very much like, okay, now what? Um, I enjoyed the movie. I like Avatar better as a colonial, you know, parallel, but um, the thing that I think I enjoyed the most about the movie was that it had something very interesting to say about imperialism as a whole, and particularly in a post-9-11 world where the, Amer the American ideal has been force of democracy and, and of liberty and hope have been, um, you know, forced upon people. And it was also interesting to me because I felt like the movie very much addressed the idea of a white savior, if that makes sense. Like America being seen as the great white hope coming in to save these backward brown people. And, and I like that that's an actual concept that we're going to have on film and talk about. Um, the film's layered. It has many different contexts, many different readings. I'm really looking forward to this HBO Max series that um, that Bienville is directing the pilot for, which is a uh, focuses on Rachel. Uh, oh, uh, what's her name from uh, the Mission Impossible franchise? Rebecca um, Ferguson. Rebecca Ferguson. So she. Uh, plays the mother of Paul, who is, and she is a member of this sister's cult, and the sister's cult is going to be 
what is the focus of that show? And they they hint at and give some backstory and detail in the movie that really makes me excited for what they could do with that show and exploring that particular sect and and maybe even her and her ideal because the the sect perpetuates the idea of the savior. They are wholeheartedly committed to this idea of a savior being born who will bring. Stop me if you've heard this before. Peace and gal- peace and balance to the galaxy. Um, and so, but they they like so essentially there are many women across the galaxy who are in this this occult who are trying to conceive children, mostly all they're supposed to be female children, to have one of them become potentially become this savior. And so that's a whole backstory that I'm really interested to see what Bienville and folks do with. Um, and that's supposed to come out next year in 2022. But like, this is one where I'm going to be disappointed if we don't get the second half. I think we will get the second half. But uh, for a first half and for just a movie, it's dialogue heavy. It's exposition heavy. There's enough firefights and people dying to keep people interested. And overall, I enjoyed myself. Like, I love the idea of a film that is complex enough to, within the span of two and a half hours, talk about colonialism and imperialism and the role of the role of outside influ- outsiders, out- otherworlders coming in and imparting their oppression upon a people in the name of saving them and draining a play, place of its natural resources and all the rest of it. And then also in the second half of that two and a half hour movie, have a conversation about messianic uh, complex, about what it means to be a savior or a chosen one. And how does one deal with that, that title being bestowed upon them? How does one deal with that, the weight of that? There's a great line, um, there's a great line that Timothy Clements Paul has in the movie where he, you know, his mother is pointing out that the people of Dune, the people of Dune, the native people, are chanting and, and declaring him the name for the savior. And she says, Look, they see it, they see it in you. And um, and Paul says, No, they see what they've been told to see. They see what they've been told to look for. And that was a really interesting and complex and deep line. To me, when especially that when you're talking about the messianic uh, ideal, and then also just the way that this particular film iteration of Dune basically made uh, highlights the mother and son relationship and how it mirrors the relationship between Mary and Christ in the Bible. Um, for for those who who don't remember, um, there's a very specific scene in the Bible where Mary kind of prompts Jesus to perform the miracle of changing the water into wine. And Christ is hesitant to do it because he's, he knows that as soon as he performs that first miracle, the clock kind of starts ticking. And he knows then that he, that his time is going to start getting shorter. Um, But he does it because Mary basically asked him to. Um, And there's a very similar scene in this movie where, uh, the mother is asking the son to do something that he's reluctant to do, but he ultimately does it to help save her and, and to, to help her uh, because she asked. So um, 
you know, th those are, I love that we have a big budget Hollywood film that does that over the course, does both those things over the course of two and a half hours. So everything you're saying, it, it, it kind of reinforces that, you know, the, the film people are really going to like this movie. It has, uh, for the most part, it, it has all these deep, complex themes um, and, and different avenues that you can go into. I just don't, I just don't know if people, like, if the, hearing all of that, it still just makes me wonder if people are going to go out to see this. And I don't, but I don't think it matters for this one. Because I think we are going to get Dune too. So I, I'm saying all this to say, like, we're, we're going to get Dune too, no matter what's, what's coming out. But with, but with all these themes and everything, it, what's the reception going to be when we finally get Dune to the people that like it, the people that in, enjoyed the first one, the people that were already in for the first one, they're going to go see it. But will anybody else? And I'm I don't, I'm only bringing that up now because it's like it just seems like a proposition where it's going to compound like a loss for Warner Brothers, but. I'm just thinking these things because I, I, none of this appeals to me at all. So this is the only thing I'm like really latching on to. So like, the thing is the visuals, while the film is to me at least is shot very cold and very distant. There's a, there's a coldness and a distance to his, his cinematography and the way he shoots this film. There's just enough, as I said, there's just enough fire and just enough explosions and just enough depth, especially in the second act of the movie, to keep general audiences interested as long as you can get them in the door. I also think that there's a certain segment of the population that knows Timothy Clement and knows his work. And so when you throw that dude up on a billboard and a poster, it lures some people in, which I think will help also with the second part. Same thing with Zendaya. There's a certain generation that just knows Zendaya and knows her Instagram and all of the things. Wait, so, wait before you go on, I think that is an interesting point because I think the the two the segments of people you're talking about are two different people. Because uh, Chalamet, I think, is very much a like a film Twitter dude, whereas Zendaya is like overall popular. So having those two on the billboard appeals to two different people that you might, you might actually get to come in and come together, uh, which was not a point I had thought about until you said that. Yeah. Casting is a very important part of this. For example, with this, uh, did you, I don't know if you noticed or not, but they really hammered home the Oscar Isaac part of this, that Oscar Isaac was in this, this movie. Mm -hmm. He was front and center in a lot of the posters and marketing materials and things. He's only in it for the first hour and 15 minutes of the movie. It, but like he's a brand name and he's a known actor and there are people who really enjoy his work. And so when you, you, you get put him front and center, you get those people to, to come aboard, you know? And uh, that's the interesting part of this to me is, is you know, I think casual movie fans or casual fans who go to this movie will get hooked enough to want to know what happens to Timothy Clement and his mother once they enter the once they enter the native land. 
Um, and I think that the HBO Max show will get diehard fans into a frenzy and keep them interested until the next one comes out. And I, I just think that the second one has more broader, the chance to have a broader, more broader appeal than this one does, because this is basically just uh, has the one big action set piece in the second act. Um, there are way more action set pieces to come in the second half of this film. So we'll see. Somebody, I saw somebody describe it as like um, seeing most of the hero's journey actually happens not in this movie, what happened in the next one. Uh, so, and I've heard different things like that. So, you know, maybe people that, that think this one is slow will actually enjoy doing two more. Maybe that'll bring people in because you'll have those, those more, uh, you know, actiony beats that people are, are used to in the second well, one. Well, and a lot of, and some of those actiony beats are in the, the visions, quote unquote, or the dreams, quote unquote, that that Paul is having in this movie. So you get glimpses of the of the battles and the him ascending to becoming uh, the head of the head of the House of Trades and the House of Trades being reborn and fighting again. Um, again, it's it's a very mosaic type story because I mean his enemies drop him and his mother in the middle of the desert and assume he's dead. And then years later, you know, oh, this guy. Thought we took care of him. No, no. Another fun part of this is Batista has next to nothing to do in this movie and a whole lot more to do in the next movie. Um, so there are plenty oh. of characters like, like that that have more to do in the next one than this one. It's just, you know, it's going to be interesting because it's kind of kind of like Star Wars in that way. Luke doesn't really have a lot to do. His hero's journey, his growth, doesn't really happen in, in A New Hope, right? Like, literally, his hand is forced because the stormtroopers come and burn his uncle and aunt alive. Like, he has no choice but to get on the Millennium Falcon with, with old man Kenobi, right? And then once he does, his, his real hero's journey starts in Empire where he goes to seek out Yoda, right? It's, it's kind of the same way here. To become the leader that he needs to become, he has to, he has to get to know these people. He has to figure out how to lead them and coalesce them against the, against the Imperial Army. And, you know, that's going to be the bulk of the second film leading to the final confrontation between the House of Trades and the Imperial Army. But even within that, there's the question of what kind of a lead, what's the difference between a leader and a dictator? So I'd heard that there are some people in this movie that, you know, could be called glorified cameos. And it never would definitely be one of those. Yeah, it never even registered me. I knew he was in the movie. Like I, I, I knew he was cast. I saw shots of him in early promotion. You saw more of him, but like the last month or so, everything I've seen with Dune. He hasn't been there. I completely forgot he was in this movie until you said that. I think he has three lines of dialogue. Oh, wow. Yeah, okay. he, is, he's, he is the enforcer for the house that is of the Imperial, basically. And so the house of the Imperial 
destroys the, thinks that they destroy the house of Atreides. And he's on the ground. You see him do a little bit of fighting in that raid. Um, but then after that, there's, there's not much for him to, he, he, he has one line when he meets with the head of the house and that's it. Um, he, it's very much a setting up for basically a Timothy, Timothy Clement versus Batista fight at some point in the second movie. Good work if you can get it. I mean, I'm sure he's not complaining, but he, but I think he, he knows what's coming. So I think he's good with it. Well, I mean, they're, they, none of them knew, right? They were just shooting the one movie. They didn't do the whole, we're going to shoot both parts together. So they now have to get all back together again and do this. And I don't know that they've, they, they set a new showrunner back in July for that, for that HBO Max show um, called The Sisterhood. Um, I'm not sure if Rebecca Ferguson is in on that show yet or if they're going to cast a younger version of her, but it would be, I would think you'd have to have her or a younger version of her to make that show relevant and interesting. I've heard good things about Rebecca Ferguson in this movie, if nothing else. But I've heard Well, I mean, she she's great in almost everything she does. I mean, she's a tremendous actress and she has way more of the heavy lifting to do in this movie emotionally and and facially acting than Oscar Isaac does. <laughs> and certainly more than Josh Rowland does, because Josh Rowland basically just has to walk around being tough Thanos asshole. Um I'm sorry, but for the rest of my life, I'm never going to be able to watch Hail Caesar or any other Josh Brolin movie and not hear Thanos. That's just that's just the way that's going to go. <laughs> oh man, you know I've still never seen Hail Caesar. I mean, you you have to have that Coen Brothers affection and affinity. The the Coen Brothers are very much like Wes Anderson and Paul Thomas Anderson, where it's like you got to love their work and where to like want to dig in because if you're not a fan of the director and the kind of movies they make inherent vice isn't going to make any damn sense to you um you know if you're not a fan of edgar wright last night in soho is not going to really do much for you you know um they're niche filmmakers in that way and and hail caesar is a very specific period piece you know it's, it's 1950s hollywood it's in the middle of communism and, and mccarthyism and it, it's got different things to say about the old Hollywood studio system. It's got things to say about McCarthyism. It's got things to say about, you know, the role of the fixer. Like it's got a lot to say, but it does it with laughs and, you know, and humor that they're kind of humor. And so if you don't get wrapped up in Fargo or Ballad of Buster Sags or any of these others, uh, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Or any of these other coen brothers comedies it's not going to register with you or you're not going to enjoy it as much as you know as a as a person who does enjoy those things would i enjoy it i'm not the biggest fan of kingpin or oh brother where art thou or fargo or any of those other movies i enjoy and love hail caesar because of the old hollywood aspect of it because of the things that they're talking about in regards to the old studio system because of the role of the fixer and those are the reasons why I enjoy Hail Caesar, not necessarily their writing or the or their their comedic beats. I I, I think I probably would like my that. hand. <laughs> I think I probably would like the old timey Hollywood stuff about it, but uh, I keep I missed it the first time, and I just keep kind of forgetting about it. So, Chad, 
how are you, how excited are you for the prospect of Angelina Jolie in a Marvel movie? And how pissed are you that flippant, arrogant movie writers want to post spoilers and not care? Um, so for the first one, um, I'm fine with Angelina Jolie being in a Marvel movie. Like, it honestly does, like, I'm so, so very neutral on that that I don't even think about it at this point. It's like, oh, yeah, she's in this movie. Good for her, I guess. I, it just does, it does nothing for me. I'm more excited that Salma Hayek is in Eternals, to be quite honest, than Angelina Jolie. Now, to the second part. I've heard that uh, some publications posted spoilers. I know that one of them is Variety. I have not sought them out I've, to see what they wrote and how they wrote it. Uh, but I've seen enough people on Twitter um, chastise and um, decry what they did to know that uh, they posted signif- significant things, which I don't understand why we're here in this day and age i mean forget just superhero movies we've we've been we've had blockbuster movies for over 40 years now what we would consider blockbuster movies for over 40 years now and we know where they have these big twists and turns and people understand that until most people are able have the ability to see the movie, not even see it, but the ability to see the movie that there are certain things that should be off limits. So I don't understand why this person that wrote this for Variety with who, a person I would assume at very bare minimum is under the age of 50, would go that that's lived in the last 20 years, if you want to get more specific with these gigantic movies that we know have spoilers and people make a big deal out of spoilers. And it's been really hammered down since we had the advent of social media and Twitter and the like. Why they would think, why they wouldn't recognize what they put is a spoiler and why they think that would be a good idea. So, I mean, that's my general thought, but to to be more specific about it, did you actually read the stuff they put? Yes. Okay, I know we, have, we neither of us have seen the movie, but is it clear the thing that they put is a spoiler? It is a spoiler, and it is the very specific to the um, to the uh, to one of the two post credit scenes. Oh, wait, so this and is, it is and it involves it involves a bit of casting that had been rumored um, on the internet for a while but is confirmed through the spoiler. Okay, now I kind of want to know what the hell it is. Uh, damn it. Okay. Wait, wait, wait. Go, wait. go ahead, go ahead, Chad. Uh, I'm, go, go ahead and issue the warning. Okay. All right, I'm trying to decide if I really want it before I, before I issue the warning. So they knew. So this spoiler is specifically about an end credit scene? Yes. So there's no way they didn't know they were spoiling something. Okay, so the way the tweet is la- the way that the tweet is labeled is major takeaway from Eternals colon. Okay, all right, people. Uh, 
fast forward about 30 seconds. Brian's going to spoil this whole thing for variety because now I can't contain myself. I got to know 30 seconds, spoiler warning. If you continue to listen after you hear the, my voice out, this is all your fault. You've been warned spoilers. And now the, uh, the spoiler is that Harry Styles from the, the pop sensation music guy from one direction who was in, um, who is in Dunkirk for Nolan. He has been cast and shows up at the end of Eternals in the post credit sequence as Thanos's brother. Wow. Okay. So first, I don't know who that character is, so I'm not totally upset. However, I know who the person is uh, vaguely, so that's still in of itself a, a huge thing. And uh, they are really assholes for doing that. Um, there's no other way around it. They're, why? Nobody has mentioned this dude. See, this is why we can't have it, it had been rumored on Reddit and on some other places for a while that he had been up for a role in the MCU. It's kind of like that that mysterious meeting that Al Pacino had with Marvel all those years ago where no one really is 100% sure what the hell happened there because <laughs> he never showed up in a Marvel movie. Um, it, it's similar to that. There had been rumors that he had had conversations with Marvel, but nothing was ever confirmed or this is the movie he's going to appear in. And then... Biggest takeaway from Eternals, colon. <sighs> well, that's, that's so unfortunate for people that just went to Variety just to get a, you know, a feel I didn't for even go movie. to Variety. I didn't even go to Variety. I, got, I was scrolling through my Twitter feed. I, you know, I'm actually shocked that it didn't come across my Twitter feed. Luckily, I think well, professional of- journalists. Yeah, the professional journalists took care not to retweet it. Yeah. And certain sites like IGN and, and our good friend Jen Davida went out of their way to make sure that people knew that it was out there, mm-hmm. but that they to avoid it. And even went so far as to give them instructions as to how to mute um, words that would possibly bring that uh, tweet to their attention. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I saw all of those. Uh, and since I don't really go about muting things, I didn't, uh, I didn't do that. But it's it never it never came across. It was just most of my most of the people on my timeline were saying this is out there. Beware! Uh, they some people specifically said it's Variety, so I knew not to even check Variety. Yeah, that was a real crap move for them to pull, and it's and it's only for clicks uh, to be the first person to say something. It's a post credit stinger, so I don't know why you would want to spoil a post credit stinger. I don't know why you would want to spoil his particular entrance into the MCU. Um, And it didn't really bother me because the character is so different from the other guy. And Mm -hmm. he's not as well known as the other guy Mm -hmm. that I didn't feel like, oh, I needed to like, this takes away from my enjoyment of the film. The film literally deals with Eternals and Deviants. (laughs) So like, you know, that particular race of individuals being in the movie, I figured someone related to him along the line would pop up. Um, but I didn't need it spoiled for me. And it doesn't add to or detract from the artistic value of the film, so I don't even know why you're bringing it up other than to just be a, a flipping asshole. And also, you've signed a non-disclosure agreement, which I'm pretty sure you've just violated. And you now make it harder for other journalists to get the access they need to report on these kind of things when they actually do abide by the things the studio asks. 
Yeah. Um, yeah, they have they have no. I mean, I can't see whoever wrote that article for Variety. I can't see them going to another, not even just Marvel event, but hell, Disney overall, because you've you've proven that you know you don't care enough about our movies to not put in things that we don't want people to know. If we wanted people to know, we would have said it. We don't want people to know you've seen the movie. All you have to do is not say that thing. You can just say that, you know, there are some surprises, particularly in the end, that people will be, you know, have opinions about or something like that. But to go out of your way to put that, yeah, I, because of variety, I don't think they can pull them completely. But just thinking about this, like the writer went out of their way to put it in there. The editor, whoever's doing that, didn't think it was, thought it was a good idea to keep it in. It's like a whole failure of structures uh, for this. And uh, they'll probably, uh, those people probably won't be working on this particular thing, but the publication as a whole is not going anywhere because it's one of the stalwarts of, uh, you know, Hollywood news and whatnot. I mean, they're, they're a trade and they shouldn't have allowed it to slip through, but they don't also control everything that is tweeted out by their, by their writers and this was just, in my view, poor, uh, poor decision making by the person who sent the tweet. Um, so is it not again, in the article? It's just a it, tweet. What I saw was a tweet. Okay. I didn't I didn't see it printed in an actual review. Um, the embargo lifts on the 30th, I believe. So we'll get a better idea of what most people thought. Reviews coming out of it, it's very hard to find reviews that bomb coming out of a, of a premiere screening. But the one thing I did take from all of the, the early screening reactions was it's a, it's a lot of exposition and it's very dense, but also <laughs> very funny. And most of all, very beautiful, which we all know Chloe Zalba is going to make the most beautiful Marvel film ever made. Yeah. I, um, yeah. I've heard it's very different. Well, not very, I heard it's different from a Marvel movie and people that have felt the movie is uneven uh they feel it's because of that that it is taking big swings and not like a what, what you would think of as a marvel movie and because of that that, that is kind of uh it kind of works against the film at, to an extent but overall people have seemed to genuinely generally like it so i mean i have no idea what to expect from the movie um i don't know these characters i don't know this world i don't know what they're trying to do this leans into the cosmic which is something i actively avoid in my comic book so i'm just going to be here along for this ride to see whatever where wherever they take us and i'm excited for angelina jolie and i was excited when they announced her all the way back at comic-con 2019 because i remember salt <laughs> I, re I remember Salt. I remember um, uh, uh, the, the uh, Wanted. I remember Wanted. I remember these movies. And I remember her trying to do uh, Laura Croft and do the kind of video game uh, comic book thing. And people not liking it very much because it was the early to mid-2000s and it wasn't really done as well as it could have. You know, Wanted is a very, a very niche comic. Uh, graphic novel similar to Watchmen really in that it has a fan base it had a very dedicated following they made a movie about it and it 
It, some people liked it, some people didn't. I was excited for her to step into this world because Marvel handles all their stuff really well and is really in is really uh, good about paying attention to the details. And she seemed, at least from her public statements on the outset, committed to making the best film that she could. And having now directed a movie, she also could, could kind of learn from Chloe Zhao and Zhao could learn from her and they could be very hands-on in the crafting of her scenes, which is something that Salma Hayek could also do. So um, a lot of filmmaking prowess on that set. And that was one thing that I was genuinely interested by when it came to uh, the announcement back in 2019. Yeah, man, she... Uh, I'm really interested in this. I'm interested for how it's going to set the stage for the rest of the cosmic universe, uh, especially with the Cassie announcement we got this week for Will Poulter. Um, yeah, man, just, I want to see a funny family cosmic misfit adventure movie, which I think is what we're going to get. And I think we're going to get to know the term deviant uh, a whole lot more. Yeah, I think, I think that's exactly what we're going to, well, that's exactly what we're going to get. Uh, We'll know all about the deviants and and uh, we'll have a, I think we'll have an idea of what this cosmic future for Marvel looks like uh, and how and deep the, that's going to go. Uh, and also the celestial, and also we'll we'll learn a little bit more about the celestials, which yeah. you know first pop up in uh, in the collectors recounting in uh, the creations of the Infinity Stones back in the original Guardians movie. Yeah. So let's talk about those two bits of cast, those two bits of news. One, Will Poulter, of all people, has been cast as the immaculate god of the cosmic universe known as Adam Warlock. I sent you a very lovely, very long form interview with Neil DaCosta uh, regarding the Marvel, uh, the Marvels and her love of comic book movies in general. Your takeaway from the article and your thoughts on Will Poulter getting ripped to play Adam Warlock. Okay, so I'm gonna start with Will Poulter. So, um, I every time I hear Will Poulter's name, the first thing I think of is we're the Millers because he is the kid, the the the, the son in quotation marks in uh, we're the Millers. And when I heard that he was being cast as Adam Warlock, my my eyebrows raised, and I, I was like, that kid. Um, which I liked him. I liked him in Where the Millers, but he is like the he's the the goofy looking eyeball kind of, you know, good natured but really odd kind of kid. And he looks in that movie, he looks odd. He looks awkward and odd. I'm like that guy. That guy's gonna be Adam Warlock. And for you, those you don't know, Adam Warlock is described as. Uh, I believe he's described as the perfect man. So in, in the comic. So that that does not look, that's not Will Poulter to me. And then I saw pictures of Will Poulter now. And um mm-hmm. I'm like, um, somebody, somebody has come up in the world because uh that's not what I mean, he's clearly the same kid from where the Millers. But just looking at him, like you, you, you're like attractive now. Like I don't understand how how this happened, and I'm not the only person to do this because I've seen the memes on Facebook where they take a picture from where the Millers, 
And then they put the two pictures I saw from like from the last couple of weeks of Will Poster. And it's like, what is this? This is witchcraft. The, the, I, this does not happen to normal people. Will Poster came on, made it come up, and I see why he is going to be Adam Warlock now. It's just, it does not compute that that is the same kid from We're the Millers. Um, yeah. Um, I knew Will, I knew Will Poulter um, from his turn in Midsummer, um, where he plays, uh, you know, a uh, douchebag horny dude and ends up getting his comeuppance um, for peeing on the ancestral tree. Um, but I knew that he had the acting chops. I knew he had the comedic chops. Uh, and I figured that there are enough personal trainers in Hollywood that they could mold anybody into shape. So, like, I wasn't surprised by that, especially given that it's James Gunn doing the casting and it's a James Gunn movie he's going to start out in. And I think Poulter could do amazing things with James Gunn's style of humor. I'm all down for that. Yeah, um, I mean, I trust, I trust James Gunn. He's done uh, an excellent job of casting everything he's been in so far, and uh, and we know the movie is, and we know the movie is now filming. Yes, uh, they yeah they they've said that. I think what yesterday, the day before, somewhere in there. Yeah, Chris uh, Chris Pratt made that official. Uh, yes, and I appreciate James Gunn because. Uh, you know, I I like Twitter a lot, and so does he. And he's very open and honest about everything that he does on Twitter and, and the movies he makes and the processes they go through. Uh, so he was the one that confirmed Will Poulter be cast, and he said all these nice things about Will and uh, and and seeing him talk about previous like casting things, like he talked about um, the process of casting Star Lord and how he didn't want to even audition Chris Pratt and he had to be talked into it. And he talked about some of the other guys that, that auditioned for it that he didn't think was quite right for the role, but he liked them and he cast them, um, I think in other roles and, and or other movies that he was involved with. So, you know, he actually, like if he auditioned all these people he really has an idea of what he's looking for. And just because it's Will Poulter, it means he he sees in him what he wants out that role. But he probably also saw other things from other people. And I wouldn't be surprised if those other people are in James Gunn movies in the future or if they're in uh, other movies. I think that's what happened. I can't, I wish I could remember the names. But I think there was one person that auditioned for Star-Lord. He didn't think it was right, but he told somebody else about this person and then they went and went to get a role somewhere else down the line. So I say all that to say, I, I trust, really just say I trust his casting. And even though it was an odd choice when I, when I heard it, seeing Will and hearing from James, uh, I, you know, can't help but feel, you know, you trust James and feel good about what he's going to do with it. Indeed. So talk to me about this article that I sent you in this long form article from uh, interview with Nia DaCosta um, talking about how she blames Captain America ha, 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 for the uh, for the Infinity War loss. <laughs> OK, um, so 
it was long, so I didn't. I skimmed over most of it. I missed that part, but I I've heard people talking about it, so I didn't know that's where this came from. Uh, how did she explicitly blame Captain America for this? You know that scene in Infinity War where Vision and Captain America are talking, and Vision's just like, "Blow my head up, like take this out of me, and let's destroy the stone right now and kill me, and that'll prevent him from having all of the Infinity Stones because one of them won't exist anymore." And Captain America's like. We don't trade lives. Um, Nia DaCosta was like, he chose the life of an android. Senate one, but an android over the lives of millions of people. He's a douchebag. All right, Nia, that's not that that's that's not fair. Because um, if if we're gonna play that game, um, everybody likes to point out that everybody likes to blame Star Lord because uh, they almost got the damn gauntlet off Thanos's hand. But Peter lost his mind when he found when he really it really clicked that Gamora was gone. So if that doesn't happen, they take the gauntlet away. They they beat Thanos. Um, so there you go, Star Lord's fault. Fault. Um, we can also go to the fact that uh, Wanda took so long to blow up his damn head at the end uh, that it allowed Thanos to get close enough to use the time stone. And even then, we've seen from Endgame that she is more than capable of whooping Thanos' ass by herself. And yet she didn't do it. So again, we can we can if we go down this road, we can blame Wanda for it too. And let's not forget the obvious answer in that Thor didn't go for the damn head. He quite literally could have ended it all right there. Throw the hammer, chop off his head, but he had to get, he had to let Thanos know that he bested him. So he had to lead. He had to leave the opening. He had to put it in his chest so he can talk to him and torture him while he's like, I'm beating you now. And then Thanos is like, no. So if you if we want to go down this road, we can there's lots of people we can blame for this. We can there's a way we can blame each and every one, every Avenger for the loss in Infinity War. So I'm not gonna give that too much credence. Um the for as far as the rest of the article for the the parts that I saw um it really it really most of the things I really focused in on were was her talking about her experience with the Marvels coming from her other other movies and I'm 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 excited to see how that translates um like how how does she? Because if I'm not mistaken, this is just her third movie. Um, Candyman being her second, uh, which I've heard um, is uneven, but you know it's her second, and I haven't. I, it doesn't make me concerned for this one at all. But coming from her uh, her first indie movie to Candyman to this, and that transition and the scale and scope that comes with doing something like this compared to those. I just, I just want to see how the finished product comes out knowing her background with that. Um, I, I, she says some things outside of this article about this movie uh, and, and working on it that really got me excited. It, it's been so long. I forgot. I've kind of forgotten what it was, but uh she talks in very glowing detail here about Kamala uh, uh, about 
having the Miss Marvel character come in, having uh, Monica Rambeau come in, and yet making sure that all of it works and making sure it still feels like a complete story. And she has some really good quotes in here about Brie Larson and that working relationship that I really found interesting. But most of the quotes that I enjoyed the most were honestly her quotes about being an African-American filmmaker and a small indie filmmaker and jumping to a film of this size and scope and not feeling like a fish out of water and just actually feeling more at home. Uh, One of the things that she cites, one of the things that she cites is the fact that like you on a small indie film, like what she's been working on, you don't get it. You don't get it. Like if, if you have, you have a shooting schedule and if you don't get what you need on that day, you don't get it um, because you don't have the time or the budget to go back and do reshoots or pick them up later. And she's, she's cites a couple of different instances on the Marvels where she was like, Oh my God, we got to get this or we got to get that. And they were like, take your time. Like, you know, we can get it tomorrow. And if we don't get it tomorrow, we can come back and get it later in pickups. Like it's not that big of a deal. It's like when you have that kind of budget and time, you can do that. And I think that those were, were really interesting comments for me, at least. Yeah, and it's, it was, I, I wish I could remember what she said outside of this article, but it was, it was in that same vein. It was uh, because, you know, looking at it outside and then hearing every, like most of the other directors talking about going to a Marvel movie from a smaller movie, most of them are like, it's so massive and it sounds like it's overwhelming. And from what I heard her say previously in this article, it sounds like, like you said, like she felt more at home with this big monster of a movie. Uh, and it's because it's not something I've heard from the other directors. It, um, it's, uh, and it's, you know, contrary to what we would think about the transition that's what makes me excited to see what she's doing with it because she she had that that kind of polar opposite experience from what we're what we're we're thinking about. Um, what is what was the downfall of Peter Jackson? We talked earlier about Lord of the Rings. What was the downfall of Peter Jackson? The downfall of Peter Jackson was he went from being a small horror filmmaker who had limited budget and limited resources and limited special effects abilities to having endless uh, special effects abilities and endless budget and, you know, stopped relying on the things that made him a great filmmaker when he had nothing. And in her case, it almost seems like what she's saying is, I feel freer because I have more resources. I can do more things. I can be a better filmmaker and tell a better story because I can take my time, I can get it right, I can make this shot look just the way I want it, whereas on the other, I don't have that option. Um, and so that's, it's interesting to me that, that somebody who's coming from the indie world is like, I am glad I have a bigger budget. <laughs> I'm glad I have more time. I'm glad I have the best at every, she talks specifically in the article about the gift, the grips and uh, the set designers. Like she, one of the things she highlights is the fact that when you work on a Marvel movie, you work with the best of the best in every technical category. So like, they don't just give you a crappy grip or a crappy set designer and tell you to make the best of it. They get the very best that they can find to do it. And they allow you a creative collaborative working process with that grip or that camera crew or that set designer 
you know, or that makeup artist to create the best possible product. And I think that obviously that's not something you can have on every movie. And I think that she's dwelling in excitement and that's bringing out some great creative energy in her. Whereas in others, it just dims the creative energy. Yeah, that, yeah, her her side is just not one that we we hear that often, and that is that's actually like some really good points about the people that they work with because you know when when people talk about working for on a Marvel movie, they make it sound like you know it's so stifling, and and directors really they make it sound like directors really don't matter. But her take is like you know she. She's there to do that job. And in doing that job, she's giving the very best tools available. And to her, that's opening up these creative avenues. And again, that's just something we don't really hear, particularly about Marvel movies. It has definitely been interesting. Um, so Chad, before we go, your, your thoughts on a rumored Agatha Harkness Disney Plus series. Um, I think, uh, it's not something I thought was going to happen, but in hindsight, it uh, makes a lot of sense. Agatha was clearly a standout of that movie and, I mean, of the TV show and a chance to use that theme song as a sitcom theme song. Uh, I mean, that, that just seems like a, it seems like it's supposed to happen. Uh, I don't know what, I don't know where they can go story-wise um it kind of makes you me do, you would do the salem thing you do the background stuff i think i i i kind of think you're gonna uh i kind of think it would be in present day i, I don't know i don't well, know at this it, moment at this moment in the mcu present day would mean she is trapped in that same small town yeah yeah and then i don't so i don't know if it means that uh it's about her breaking free of, of Wanda's spell, or maybe she is broken free of Wanda's spell, but she's still stuck in that little town. Uh, I I don't know. Um, it it kind of makes me think that maybe we do see her in Doctor Strange, and they go from there. I, I, I don't know. And uh, props to the LSU band, who was on fire Saturday morning playing Agatha all along in their uh, melody of villain theme songs. Which is which is funny because their band director does not like WandaVision. Uh, you heard that here first. Uh, I sure enough text him during the middle of that show like, oh, you put this in there and you don't even like the show. And uh, they, they, they spelled out Agatha and it was it was a good time. Um, I, I know I saw I saw the show. I was able to see the show. So that'll about do it for this week's oh, wait, podcast. Wait, 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 wait. We got some more. We got some more. Um, because we didn't talk about that stupid Batman trailer. And I want to say there's something with Spider-Man, but I can't really remember right now. But I don't know if you've seen the Batman trailer. I did. I don't think we I talked about it. it. I saw it when it came out, and then I saw it last night ahead of noon. Oh, so you did see it in IMAX. Um, mm-hmm. Well, what did you think about the trailer? The sexual tension between that Catwoman <laughs> and that Batman is very palatable, and I can see why they ended up doing it on the Batmobile in between shots. <laughs> that 
That is a rumor. Like, it is. I'm, well, I'm sustained. That is a confirmed rumor, sir, because she was pregnant afterwards. And, uh, you know, even Mel, even Michelle Pfeiffer and Michael Keaton didn't have that kind of sexual tension <laughs> in 1992. So, uh, yeah, that was the thing. That was one thing that jumped out at me. And then also just like, you know, the, the whole Riddler aspect and the idea of, um, of Riddler laying, laying clues for Batman to come and figure out the uh, didn't didn't think we'd ever get back to another uh, police department interrogation scene. I think the last one was done pretty damn well, so I didn't think anybody would want to trod that ground again. Um, so that's interesting. I like Paul Dano's look as Riddler, um, and this Batman voice is actually easy to understand, which I'm a fan of. Yeah, it, it, it's so like I didn't even think about it when when I was listening to it. I was like, eh, it's not offensive. It, uh, I can I can hear him. I mean, we don't really have. I don't know if we really have a comparison to his regular Bruce voice, but you know, it it works. There's it, it's cool. It doesn't have to be so hard, Christian Bale. It doesn't have to be. And you know the the nailing down like the 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 hardcore violent like gritty stuff that we had seen a year ago in the trailer um the i am vengeance line was in the original trailer um the way that this batman fights is a more brutal hand-to-hand combat than what nolan's batman was similar to what affleck's batman was um although this guy doesn't really seem to murder people so much as just shot them to death um but yeah, you you get the raw intensity in that trailer, especially in IMAX format. Yeah, so I'm I'm very torn on this trailer. Uh, I mean, my thoughts about the the violence and the the just the nature of this Batman remain the same from the first trailer, which is, you know, we we're we're going heavy into the the dark, brooding, brutal. Batman again. Uh, we we keep taking progressive stuff darker and darker every time we have a Batman, and it's the opposite way that I would want to go with a Batman. So I, I have those feelings, but I mean, the trailer looks very good. You can tell it's directed very well. It, it's the movie looks like it's going to be a very good movie. It's just um and and I'm I'm curious about Robert Pattinson. I think. Uh, from what we've seen, he looks like he could be a, a good Batman, but in this style of Batman. Uh, and again, that's just that's kind of my my big thing. Um, I like Zoe Kravitz as uh, as Catwoman. She's very very much a year one Catwoman, and I think she can grow into a whatever a traditional kind of Catwoman in this universe is. Uh, I mean, it just, it, everything looks good. It's just. We didn't get a glimpse of, we didn't get a, we didn't get a a penguin cameo in this, did we? Yeah, we did. We we got the, we we did. I I missed it because I was looking, I I know we got the Riddler cameo at the beginning with him uh, arresting him and then in the jail cell. He's in it twice. He's in it kind of early, but at the very end when, uh, when, He's in the car, the dude in the car. They're saying, I got you, I got you. And the Batmobile blows through that uh that truck and hits the car. That's the penguin in the car. That's him saying that. 
And then that's the that's him saying, "Calm down, young man," or whatever. Uh, I think so. I don't remember the beginning yeah. as well as the uh, the end because the end just sticks out because it's the Batmobile messing up stuff. I mean, I enjoyed it. I have no I have no issues with that movie, man. Like, I saw I saw this dude Matt Reeves do two amazing Planet of the Apes movies and work hand in hand with Andy Serkis to create great art. Pretty damn sure he can make great art out of anything, especially being a Batman fan. I'm sure he's going to invest a whole lot of emotional energy into getting this right. It's just Batman is kind of like Shakespeare at this point. It's it's all up to everybody's interpretation. What my favorite Batman, the qualities I look at, look for in a Batman on film is different from what you look for in a Batman on mm-hmm. film. That's just the way that that's just the nature of the character at this point, you know, seven iterations in. Uh, you know, so. Yeah, at the end of the day, everybody's going to have their own interpretation. This is this guy's interpretation, and I kind of dig it. Especially when I can think of, you know, Batman and Catwoman doing it on the hood of the Batmobile. I mean, I I get that, and I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm probably going to like it. I'm probably going to like it, too. Think, think about the poor PA, Chad. Think about the poor production assistant who found them on the Batmobile and had to go tell the director. Think about having to have that conversation with your director. <sighs> I'm, I'm okay. I'm 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 not touching bat, the bat cat sex on the Batmobile uh, on this movie set. Um, I, I will stop my Batman discussion just by saying that again, uh, and I said it before. I say it again that again we are approaching uh, another Batman movie that I cannot take a child to go see the Batman movie. And while I might like this, I do think that is a fundamental flaw of. DC's model when you continue to push out the kids for the particularly for Batman movies. Uh, you know, yeah, you can't take a kid to go see Dune either. <laughs> oh, oh. <laughs> I mean, well, you, can, you, can, you can barely take a kid to go see Aquaman. Uh, Aqu- Aquaman has some stuff, but it's overall so silly that uh, the 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 stuff that I think would be questionable for kids, like. I mean, my kid's 12. I, I can take her. Well, she was 10 when Aquaman came out, almost 11. I could have taken her to see that. The 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 questionable part, she would have been fine with. But, I mean, at this point, I probably can't take her to see a Batman movie until she's like 17. So we've had, in her lifetime, there have been uh, like three or four movies with Batman in the title, and I can't take her to see any of them. Yeah, and and that you know that cuts off your your business model there, extending it to new generations. Yep, and that's that's been my my biggest thing. I think I mean it's it's a comic book character. The vast majority of his story of Batman stories have been of a nature that children can read them. Even there are a few that are extremely adult, but most of the ones that people think are adult, kids can still read. And I think you yeah, can do Batman, that. On, Batman hasn't always been the Watchman. <laughs> no, yeah, no. I, I, I think there's a way to tell these stories that you feel are adult, but have kids show up. Kids can watch and not be traumatized by Batman bashing somebody's fist in, face in with his fist. Uh, he can beat people up, but you know you can you can do these things in a different way. But that's how they that's how they want to do them. Whatever. Uh, 
oh, I, I did find the, the one Spider-Man thing and then we can leave. I promise. Uh, so, you know, you, you always like to talk about how, you know, we don't get Kevin Feige time and whatnot. Uh, he had a comment about Venom. I don't know if you saw it. Oh, the, the, the we worked very closely with the far from home folks. Yes. Like the far comment. from home folks and the far from home folks and the Venom folks worked very closely on that. Yeah, I think I'm looking at the quote right here and it says uh, Kevin Feige on the Venom Let There Be Carnage post credit scene. He quote, there was a lot of coordination. And if you still don't know all the coordination, I'm not going to be the one to tell you. But between Sony and Marvel and the Venom and Spider-Man No Way from No Way Home team, we work together. Um the like if he would just stop that between Sony and Marvel, we work together. I think no, I, I would have this would have flown right by. Nobody would have cared. It's the inclusion of the Spider-Man No Way Home team that sets this whole thing off for me. It's like there's no reason for you to say that and include Venom in it. There's no there's no reason for Venom and Spider-Man No Way Home to be in the first the same sentence of working together. But there it is. There it is. You know why that's there, Chad? To to give me heartburn as I go and watch these movies? It is there, Chad, because they have to explain, because that explains why, as we talked about on our spoiler cast for Let There Be Carnage, that it looked as if whatever spell that Dr. Strange and Spidey were cooking up in the basement of the Sanctum Serum occurred at that exact moment when Venom was going to open up his knowledge to Eddie. And that that flash that occurred across the screen was in fact that spell being cast. And so if that's the case, you would need to see how that graphic and and they'd have to coordinate how that graphic would look in the move in of No Way Home with how it should look in no in uh, Venom Let There Be Carnage so that people could make the connection. And I think that's what he's talking about. I don't think he's talking about Venom showing up at the end in the Sinister Six version that's going to be in uh, No Way Home. I think he's talking about them talking about how they're going to represent the spell on screen and then the Venom people recreating that in their post-credit tag. I mean that that seems like a a sensible reading of this, but allow me to not be sensible for a minute. Um, I in in so in your interpretation of it, to me, it's like there, there really doesn't need to be any coordination, particularly because as as so as I'm watching that scene it already doesn't match up to what I'm in reading it in my mind. Like we're assuming that the movie lets us assume that uh, things around Eddie has changed. And because I know what movie is coming next, I assume that it's Dr. Strange, the spell from Dr. Strange that changes everything around Eddie. However, um, while Eddie is watching the TV, that is clearly 
of Spider-Man not long after the end of Far From Home, which should be at the very least days, if not weeks, should happen between that and the Doctor Strange thing. So those timelines don't quite match up. And knowing Sony... Remember, remember that Doctor he goes to Doctor Strange in October. You're right about that, but the spell would have been uh, cast to erase memories from the day of Jane Jonah Jameson's telecast, which Eddie Brock was in the middle of watching at the moment that the spell crosses. So, but they're it, not it, casting they're not casting the spell so that people forget from October backward. They're casting the spell so that people never watched the telecast and never saw him unmasked. Okay, and see, this is where you get magic shenanigans, and this is where my whole hatred for magic comes in. So I can get with that if the telecast, if when Eddie's watching the telecast, because the TV changes while he's, the TV changes to Spider-Man while, when the spell happens. If the telecast showed J. Jonah Jameson and then a masked Spider-Man sitting there, I'd be like, okay, I, I I can I can rock with that, but it's it's the telecast with Jameson blasting Peter's name out and Peter's sitting there with his mask off. So if it's, I mean, yes, this, if the, the spell is to get rid of people's knowledge of it, if that's the case, he shouldn't be sitting there unmasked and Jonah shouldn't be saying this. Now, I mean, they could say, you know, I mean, they did it because it's the movies and we we need to know they're telling us where where technically the spell comes technically the spell comes across after j jonah jameson says that it's peter parker when he licks the screen all he's licking is ooh tasty treat because there is the tom holland spider-man on screen and so the the revelation of him being being uh, Peter Parker comes before the spell crosses. Once the spell crosses, the only thing that's on the television is Spidey unmasked as Tom Holland, and Venom licks the screen and goes, "Ooh, tasty treat." Oh, no, no, but the the TV's not even the TV doesn't change to Jameson until the whole room changes. I, I know what you're saying, but he's not watching Jameson before before the spell happens. It's something else because he's not even paying attention to it. And it's only after everything changes that we see JK saying this stuff. So it was the, the room changes after the spell has happened, which in in this whacked out magic stuff should not be the case if it's happening after his identity has been erased. All that it's I hate magic. This is why I hate magic. Indeed. Uh, but that'll about do it for this week's podcast. If you want to keep up with this podcast, you can follow us on Twitter. I am at, at uh, BCW Tiger Fan. I'm at the Mets Theory. Thank you very much and have a pleasant evening. Would be interesting. So, Chad, remember to put this at the back end of the podcast, not the front. <laughs> In five, four, three, two, one. I would hope it's not Bianca, but I feel like it would be Bianca instead of Becky. I mean, like, 
Bianca's got a bright future and they'll they're gonna do a lot of great things with her. I'm just like this is not this is not the way that this this return should have gone and to have her return as a heel where you know after after the baby and the whole the whole giving up of the title to Asuka thing like could have just had her come back as a face and done the mutual respect thing but they you know had to had to hash a plan together really quickly I mean but one they didn't have to hash it quickly they knew Sasha wasn't going to be in that in that goddamn match for a week uh, so there's no need for quick. You had a whole week to figure it out, and that's what you came up with. Two, I understand Becky wants to be wanted to come back as a heel, and I understand you kind of want to do what she want what what she asked. But uh, at some point, you have to listen to the audience too, and the audience does not want to boo her. So, yeah, when she came back, if you if you want her to come back at SummerSlam to save that match. You knew a week ahead of time that was going to be the case. And I think that even when she came back, she should have won the title from Bianca. Yeah, you don't you don't do the the dirty move, heel turn, 26 second stuff. You give them a match. Let them, let them have the match. And let and let it be what, the, the mutual respect thing, like you said. Which everybody thought was what was gonna happen. Yeah, I mean, the minute she came out, everybody was like, oh, yeah, she's She's winning the title, but no kitty, no, no kitty. Kitty does not need alcohol. Away from the alcohol. <laughs> uh, that so that so well the cat's still around, uh, and this this cat likes alcohol. Uh, well, it's a kitten, and it's very curious, and it's playing around. Uh, you know, I have truly, I have a truly out. She's trying to. Think it's milk or something, I guess. Lick it up. So, a few licks, you'll figure that out real quick. Mm-hmm. 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 Yep, yep. So, uh, James Franklin, boomer bust, because uh, I don't, I don't see very many other names popping up on that list right now besides uh, Franklin and uh, oh. Um, Maybe Bill O'Brien. I mean, if those are the choices, then yes, I want James Franklin. I think think Franklin is the safest hire. Uh, But if USC wants him first. I mean, at that point, what does he value? Does he value uh, LSU over USC or USC over LSU? Then it's a personal choice. And uh, you know, I ain't got a problem with him making him picking, but if if he want if LSU is his choice, then go ahead and get him. He's the safest guy out there. But I, of the pool that of the names that keep floating around, I don't really have an issue with many with any of them actually. I mean, I I know they all have their weaknesses in in on their resumes and whatnot, but uh. I don't think any of them will flame out here. You think Billy Napier wouldn't flame out at LSU? No, I don't think he will flame out. I, th- I think well, he would. I mean, t- Go ahead. Uh, I think he would be. Uh, I think he would be fine. I at this point, I, I know people don't want 
the 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 quote unquote ah. what the hell did the cat attack you the cat just stuck his uh claws into my ass <laughs> he's trying to trying to climb up on the chair and so he he dug his dug his uh claws into my ass to try and climb up the chair all right yeah uh, i've I haven't been exactly there, but I understand. Uh, uh, I, I have this cat. I, I know the deal. Okay, come on, Merlin. Time to go into the playpen. <laughs> so, um, yes, about what you uh, about what you tweeted last night. My my issue is not national championship or bust. That is not my expectation nor has that ever been my expectation for this LSU football program, having been a, a child of the 90s and been happy to make the Independence Bowl. Um, my expectations for this program are to win 10, 9 to 10 games every year, to be in contention for a New Year's Six Bowl every year, and once every four years play for a national championship. And, you know, I don't think those are unreasonable expectations for either the football team or the baseball team, honestly. Um, But, like, there's too much talent. There's too much invested in the program for you to be in the Music City Bowl or the Texas Bowl or the Citrus Bowl. Like, that's not where you as a program should be. And while I think Alabama is going to figure out really quickly that – what they're doing right now is not sustainable as in you're not going to be in the playoff and national championship game every year. Um, I don't think that that kind of success is what I'm, what should be expected. Cause I don't think it can be replicated. I do think it's a fair standard to say that we should not be a 500 football team, that we shouldn't be going to the Texas bowl or the music city bowl, that we should be aiming, you know, to do what the other guys did, which was literally um, get to a national championship, win it, and then re- spend the next three years rebuilding, and in that fourth year going and competing again. Like, the problem Les had was he couldn't do it twice. He could only do it once. You know, 08, 09, and 10 are not great seasons by LSU standards. There are a couple of Peach Bowls in there. And uh, I think uh, I think a peach, uh, two peach bowls and I think a citrus bowl up in that that area. Um, but after that, that that set the stage for eleven in one of the greatest seasons in school history. Um, same way with you know, the problem was in 12, 13, 14, and fifteen, he couldn't re- he couldn't rebuild it and get it back to where it needed to be. And you know, Ed was in the process of trying to rebuild after the 19 season, but he, and he, you know, there were too many issues there. Um, and he wasn't producing the on the field success that you would like to see, you know, that pointed to the direction of being able to compete for a championship again quickly. So my standard of success is again, when, when eight, nine to 10 games, three years, national championship, or, or like contention for the SEC West and the SEC overall in the national championship every four years. That's it. 
I think I think those are reasonable expectations. Uh, I ask that because I don't think a lot of people have reasonable expectations. I think that the longevity and um, and overall dominance of Alabama for the last what thirteen years has colored what they th- it it's not and it's not just LSU. I think it's colored what the, the entire upper echelon of the sport where that's what they they think that that is replicable everywhere that the the consistency that they have at the top end level is uh, like you can repeat that anywhere and and I think Clemson was feeding into that too because you know they had they have this four-year stretch where they were pretty much doing the same thing but now we're seeing that Clemson is coming down to earth a little bit and that no what's not what what you said is normal uh, for for the top end programs uh the I mean the most consistent program over the outside of like championships has been like Ohio State and even then they've only got two championships in the last 20 years Alabama is an outlier but I think everybody thinks that anybody can that LSU can have what Alabama has and I don't think that's possible with anybody else I think what you're saying is reasonable it's probably the best we can hope for and if we get that we are damn lucky uh it's just most people most people have outsized expectations because of that red program over there that we don't like well and I think that those people in, in Tuscaloosa are going to find out really quickly whenever he retires that what they what they figured out after Bear passed. Like Bears, I think what Bears last season was 1982. They didn't win another championship till 92. They had to go through a couple of guys before they got to Gene Stallings. Um, like it isn't easy. Like what he's, it's, it's not the program. It's not the resources. Yes. Bama has the resources. Yes. Bama has the money, but they had those when Mike DeBose was there. They had those when Dennis Francione was there. Like they've had other coaches besides Nick Saban and they have not been this dominant. Yes. They've won an SEC championship, but they have never, they haven't won national championship till Saban got there. And honestly, I think that if you took Nick Saban and put him at Vanderbilt, Vanderbilt would compete for national championships every single year. Cause I don't think it's the program. I think it's the man and the agenda and the, the expectations and the rigorous demands that he sets that creates the atmosphere uh, for that kind of success to be, to be possible. Um, you know, so I think that it's not the program, it's the man and not that, and the man doesn't exist everywhere. And Clemson's finding out now that you, you, ha- you can't do it across, you have to be able to do it across multiple quarterbacks. They have the opposite of the LSU problem. LSU has not been able to, to sustain success, after, you know, coordinator-wise after Brady and Insminger. Like, they have found the problem is they can't, re- like, you have to have a, transition a quarterback and if you miss on a quarterback it can set your entire program back for a decade yep that um yeah i think yeah that's about that's about right um i'm clemson is going i think people should watch clemson and we see what happens in clemson next year to to really 
to gauge how how this goes. Um, hell, um, Georgia is going to be interesting to watch over the next few years because it it seems they're they are a uh, a heat seeking missile of destruction this year, and God help them if they don't win it this year. But what happens next year? Because they are, they are the ones closest to Bama in terms of the relentless recruiting and and the gap in talent between them and everybody else. So are they able to just keep on uh, rolling along like like Bama does, or are they going to take another step back down to you know normalcy like everybody else does? And I mean, hell, I'm I am still not convinced they'll win it this year because it because there is just absolutely no reason they shouldn't. So I don't think Chad, they will. Chad, they are the 2011 LSU Tigers. Oh no, no I, I know what you're getting at. They're better. That, that deep that that defense is elite. The special teams are elite. The offense is not. And they have not, and they have not been put in a position so far this season where they have had to rely on their offense to win them a game, and that's going to show itself against Alabama in just in the first weekend of December. Um, but that's that's who they are. They're, and if you remember that SEC championship game against Georgia in eleven, Tyron Matthew had to save our rear ends. Oh, I, I remember. I completely remember. Um, but. But once they got going, I mean, the offense, everybody bags on that offense. That offense, um, it at the end of the year, particularly the last two games, you saw that if if they couldn't get the running game going, it was kind of all downhill until something happened. They were happen. down to Western Kentucky in November, Chad. They were losing to Western Kentucky in November at home at halftime that year. Like it Were wasn't they? just against us. Yeah, it was. I was in the stadium. It wasn't just. They came out and they had a a balling second half, and that's what kind of you know that led them to the victory. But they were down. Um, they were down against uh, Western Kentucky at home. No, they weren't. I'm. They I'm, weren't. I'm no, I'm looking at the box score now. They were so they were tied. They only scored a touchdown in the first quarter, but they were tied. 7-7 first quarter. Then LSU went up 14-7. And Western Kentucky only scored two points in the third. And LSU scored 28 the, the second half. That's what it was. They had the big second half in the close game. Yeah, it was it was close to it was close to halftime. But uh yeah, because I, I I was like I don't remember that because I, I, I vividly remember only being like two games where it was really close the whole regular season. And that was Mississippi State and Alabama. And other than that, by the middle of the third quarter, my feet were up and I was just laughing the rest of the game because we were just whipping the shit out of everybody else. But indeed. But the, the difference is uh, LSU's 2011 defense was elite. Alabama's 2011. Defense 2011 defense also elite. I Georgia's defense is elite. Alabama's defense, I do not think is elite. And I think that's where Georgia has their opening. However, 
they like more than likely they're gonna have to play Bama twice. Uh, if if Bama runs table, they're gonna have to play them in the SC championship game. Well, let me let me rephrase that. If Alabama Alabama has to beat them in SC championship game for both of them to go. So if Georgia beats them in Atlanta, then that's it. They're they're done, and they sh- there should have no reason to not win the title. But if they got to play them twice, that's the kind of that's the kind of uh, the thing that uh, go mess them up. Yeah, that'll that'll be the interesting thing because the other part of that conversation is would the committee put them at one and four, or would the committee put them at two? Uh, put Georgia at three and make Georgia play the two and set up an Alabama Georgia national championship for the second time in five years. I mean, I don't know the way the season is going right now. If, if they played in the championship game and Bama won, you'd have to put Bama one. Georgia has been so good. And I'm presuming will still be so good the whole year. I think you'd have to put them two. Uh, just so, and and that make so we we're gonna we're staring down the face of a Alabama Georgia rematch for the title. 